it's always a, a you know when you come up with a, a sermon topic and, and you go to the worship team and say this is what I'm teaching on and I gave them a really tough one this week and they delivered I'm uh, kind of fired up and I've had four cups of coffee this morning so buckle up uh, here we go uh, uh, let me pray for us as we get started Father, as we just sang, we need you, and we invite you here today, Lord. We invite your presence to teach to us from your word. Lord, help us to discern what is good and true, what is yours and not mine. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was just after the new year, and... Uh, met up at a busy Panera Bread in West Knoxville with Pastor Chris to have lunch. And uh, we sat down, and he told me about this great New Year's resolution that he had put forth the previous Sunday, asking everyone simply to pray more. Great. And I wish I'd have been there. We were traveling back from New York City, so I missed that service and I, I, in my mind, I envision that literally dropping the gauntlet. Pray more. Boom. Drop the gauntlet right there. That's your challenge for this year. Pray more. So we started talking about uh, prayer in the Bible, in the, uh, in the Psalms, which are prayer and worship. We talked about the various types of Psalms and, and uh, the mood. There's not a lot of light talk when we get together for lunch. I just thought about that. <laughs> but we, we went over all these things, you know. How do we pray through these moods that the psalmists have when they're writing these things? Can we? And are these psalms perhaps the answer on how we're supposed to do that? So we started talking again about the various types, and he asked me, very generously, which, if any, I might be interested in tackling. And as he mentioned earlier, I knew right away. Because while I may not be proud of it, it's one emotion that I'm intimately familiar with. So I asked him if I could have the imprecatory psalms. Now, imprecatory psalms, that's one of those lovely theological 50-cent words. So I'm going to break it down. Of course, many of you know this. The psalms where the author is asking God to get my enemies out of a sense of anger, typically. They're called imprecatory because the psalmist showers imprecations or curses on his enemies. And honestly, as a former slash recovering hothead, I was uncomfortably comfortable with interpreting these. But the question is, is anger a praying mood? So if we're going to talk about prayer, which we have been over the last several weeks, I'd like to kind of step back for a minute and define it. See, in, in, in Western culture, and this is not picking on any church culture, any specific church, every church that I've ever visited or attended, it goes like this. In any meeting, whether it's a Sunday school, a small group, in church itself, a prayer meeting, whatever, it typically goes this way. Are there any prayer requests? 
and immediately you start to see notepads and legal pads and prayer journals and all these things come out and pens, right? And we start writing down prayer requests. And we do what I like to call the bees, the blesses, the heals, and the thank yous. Be with her. Bless him. Heal him. Thank you for her. Whether it's a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, or ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. And if I was to ask anybody here, and I know that the kids in youth group would know the answer to this because we just started talking about prayer. Recently, we covered it. How would you define prayer? If today after church during our fellowship time when we're all hanging out together, if I was to just run around and do a poll without talking about it up here first, how would you define prayer? How would you define prayer? I think every single person in here at some point would just say prayer is talking to God. Anybody disagree with that? Prayer is talking to God. But it's more than that. So recently had the opportunity to hear uh, a speaker, a man by the name of Daniel Henderson. He's a pastor, and he's also an author of a book called Transforming Prayer. It's a tiny little book, and, and I recommend it. It's very good. He says that that definition of us talking to God, it reduces our role in our relationship with God to essentially us being a mouth and God being a big ear. And I never thought about it that way before. I have to be honest with you. I've been a Christian my whole life. I never thought about that. Is that true? Well, Henderson wouldn't be much help if he didn't offer a better definition for prayer. But he does. And his definition is this. And just thank you, Zane, because this is the last minute. I said, throw the definition up there. So Zane's up there juggling, you know, however many uh, balls to get this to happen. But prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. I love that definition. Prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of whose purposes? His purposes. That can be tough because we know what we want. It lines up exactly with what Jesus taught his followers in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. Not mine. If you're a note taker, write that down. Because we're going to come back to it. I promise. Prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. See, I believe that Pastor Chris's challenge to us this year pray more. I believe that that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because when we're intentional to pray, when we make it a habit, it leads to intimate fellowship with our Savior. And not only that, it leads to the fulfillment of God's purposes. Is not what we want? In contrast, Henderson says this about prayerlessness. Those of us who get out of the habit of prayer, or maybe haven't made a habit of prayer, 
guilty at times. Prayerlessness can be defined as my declaration of independence from God. My declaration of independence from God. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I can safely tell you right here from the pulpit that usually when the words, I got this, come out of my mouth, it never works out the way I intended to. It just doesn't. Now, over the past two weeks, we've been digging into Psalm 51. And David dealt with and prayed through his shame. Uh, one of the, there were a couple of important points that I want to um, go over because I think that we need to, and I think they apply to this lesson as well. That first of all, one of the important points that we learned was that we must let ourselves feel the weight of our own sin. We have to take ownership of it and not deny it. That's so important and so powerful. I wrote that down when Pastor Chris said that, and I underlined it like twice, and I sat there and just looked at that and dwelled on that. Take ownership of your sin. Because that leads to the next part. Once you own it, you can ask God for three things. Forgiveness, for cleansing, and for redemption. Now this week, we're going to be turning to Psalm 109. So if you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and uh, turn there. Um, we're going to be spending most of our time uh, reading through that psalm, but uh, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. There will be some other verses that will get uh, thrown up on the screen as well. We're going to begin with uh, verses 1 through 5. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. So the author here, David, is being attacked. And others are spreading lies and accusations. But just as was proven last week when we were talking about uh, David, his default is to turn to God. He says, I give myself to prayer. Now the difference here between this instance and what we've been studying the last couple weeks is that unlike in Psalm 51, David has nothing to take ownership of here. He's not praying through any shame for something that he did. As a matter of fact, he doesn't declare himself guilty in any way about bringing this sort of behavior onto him. In this particular instance, David is innocent. And what he talks about is his love and his goodness, which is being repaid by evil. And we have a word for this. We call this injustice. When bad things happen to good people, or when something happens to you that you don't deserve, 
Injustice refers to an unfair outcome. Now, last week, Pastor Chris reminded us that sin was born and bred in David. But see, that's true for us too. Sin's here. We live in a broken and unjust world. And because our world is broken and unjust because of sin, and sin lives in us, we are broken and unjust too. And when I came to that realization while I was writing this, actually, to be perfectly transparent with you, the second time through this, I was kind of going through it, and I stopped on that. And I thought, well, wait a minute. If you were to ask me, hey, uh, David, could you write down or just recount however many times you felt like somebody treated you unjustly, I could rattle them off. Easy peasy, okay? But the truth is, if you were to say, how many times have you treated somebody else unjustly? I have to think about that for a minute. But I have. Two weeks ago, I, I remember this. I'm at work. It was a particularly stressful day. I don't even remember what was going on. And my cell phone rang. It was sitting on my desk, and it was a Knoxville number. Now, many of you know that Angie and I were trying to sell our house for quite a while. The, we took the house off the market at the end of August when the contract was up with an intention to put it back on the, the market after I was done with school and, and Ian was done. We both finished in May. But realtors started crawling out of the woodwork as soon as the house was off the market. It was amazing. And at first, we were kind of shocked and then sort of laughed about it. But unfortunately for this particular realtor, he called at a very bad time. And normally, I let a, a number I don't recognize just sort of go to voicemail. And for whatever reason, I picked it up. Hello, Mr. Huey? Yes? Uh, this is so-and-so from such-and-such -such realty, and I just cut loose. I said, you need to stop calling me. The house is not on the market. I don't know when it's going back on the market. And we're not sure who we're going to go with, but this needs to stop. Do not call me again. Click. Now, I don't think cell phones actually click. I mean, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? I mean, I just click. I hung up the phone. And I immediately felt terrible. I know better than that. I wasn't raised to treat people that way. That, was, that poor person was just doing their job. That was unjust. It made it worse. Three days later, a card arrived in the mail from the realtor, and it was a handwritten, we're so sorry that we caught you at a bad time, and blah, 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 which, you know, so I feel this big at this point. Okay. So we live in a broken and unjust world, and there are times when it comes out of us because of our sin, and there are times when it just hits us because of someone else's. And that's what's happening here to David. David says, I give myself to prayer. Now, human beings, interestingly enough, we all tend to respond to injustice in the same way. How did I just respond? Well, I was the, the cause. But despite culture, despite your background, your religion, Whatever it is, we have this universal sense of right and wrong. And that's just part of our created being. 
What does Genesis 1.26 say? It says, Then God said, Let us make man, humankind, in our image, after our likeness. You know, we struggle with this concept of being image bearers of God, of, of bearing something of God's likeness. But I believe that this refers to the fact that some godly attributes are just sort of hardwired into our hearts. They're bestowed upon us because that's how we were created. We are his image bearers. We rally against injustice when we see it happening. Proverbs 20, 23 tells us, Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. God does not like a cheater. Our God is a righteous and just God. There are similar warnings uh, also offered in Proverbs 11.1, 1, 16.11, and 20.10. It makes you wonder, oh, this was so foundational, they had to repeat it. They had to make sure that they got the point across. I think Psalm 89.14, it sums it up best. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So in Psalm 109, David's feeling unjustly attacked. So how does he respond to this? Well, it turns out David's a man after God's own heart, but he's also a man. He responds, at least on the surface, like most of us probably would. There was an article published in Psychology Today called The Psychological Dynamics of Outrage Against Injustice says that many people become outraged when something occurs that they perceive as unjust, unfair, excessive, or otherwise inappropriate. So outrage seems to be this go-to human emotion. It's anger. And that's David's mood. And interestingly enough, it is a praying mood. You know, it's funny... Um, before I started attending here, I used to think I had a big family. And then I found out that there are bigger families out there. <laughs> but I'm one of five kids. I've mentioned that before. And anytime you're in a group of people, whether it's your family, whether it's at work, whether, you know, wherever th this may be, there is going to come time when one person may come up to you just out of a sense of camaraderie, whether it's a sibling or whoever, and say, hey, um, I wouldn't go talk to them right now. They're in a mood. Right? I remember times being the one of the two youngest in my family, but arguably having the biggest mouth of all five of us, being told many times by my sister, you know, hey, don't go bother our other sister who's not here to defend herself right now because she's in a mood. Right? Don't go into the garage. Dad's in a mood. How many of you have heard that before? You can raise your hand. We're not Pentecostal, but it's okay. You can say, right? Okay. It's universal. And, and I was really, th I thought about this. And I even talked to Pastor Chris about this. And so then I went on Facebook because I have friends who live over in the UK. And I have some friends that live in Denmark. And so uh, I asked them, if I was to say this to you, somebody's in a mood, do you understand what that means? Everybody said yes. 
So, so I found that very interesting. But here's the, here's the thing that really catches you, okay? Has anybody ever said that to you and you've turned around and went, well, what kind of mood? Anyone? I mean, they could be happy. They could be sad. They could be melancholy. I mean, I don't know, right? No. None of us have ever said, well, what do you mean? What kind of mood? We all just kind of know, right, that they're in a mood is not a good thing. And David, at this point, I believe, is in a mood. So we'll pick it up here at uh, verse 6, and this is kind of a long stretch from 6 to, to 21. But listen carefully to how David is, is addressing God, starting in verse 6 here. He says, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit, the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Wow. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved the curse. Let the curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. Think about that. I mean, you ever get oil on you and you, I mean, you just can't wash it off kind of thing? It, it's much more difficult than just drying water. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Does that sound angry to you? It does to me. And understandably so. Anger is so common among us. Christian counselors report that 50% of the people who come in for counseling have problems dealing with anger. 50%. I would have thought the number would be higher. Does this surprise anyone? Really? Consider this. The fall of humankind happens in Genesis 3. The first time we see anger mentioned, Genesis 4, verse 5. Cain being angry, and we all know how that turned out. 
When I was a kid, uh, there was a TV show that my brother and I used to love to watch, The Incredible Hulk, I'm Dating Myself, with the late, great Bill Bixby. And the show was based on a comic book, which was very, very uncommon back in those days. Now every other movie is a comic book movie. But, but this was something to us. The show, if you're not familiar, is about a scientist who, after an accident, a very nice, kind, gentle man, when he was pushed too far and became angry, would grow into this green, muscular giant, you know, and growl and, and you know, flip over cars and, you know, all that, that kind of thing, right? And as little kids, we loved this show. We didn't care about the Bill Bixby part, you know, all that character development stuff. We just waited for the last act of every episode when he got thrown out a candy glass window that you could tell was clearly fake or whatever, you know, because this is before CGI. And all of a sudden, the Hulk would show up. And they didn't have, like, computer-generated effects. They, they had a bodybuilder play the part. I actually met him last year, a man named Lou Ferrigno. It was really... Um, really special to my brother because Lou Ferrigno had a, a profound hearing loss and still does and my twin brother was deaf so here was somebody on screen playing a superhero that my brother could identify with but what was most interesting about you know this particular character is he doesn't wear a cape he doesn't necessarily I mean he doesn't do bad things but he's the end result of anger in the opening um, credits i bring up the tv show for a very valid reason i think in the opening credits uh they they show this one small tiny scene from the pilot episode uh the dialogue is uh bill bixby's character is talking to an investigative reporter somebody that follows him throughout the show kind of like a fugitive sort of motif to it and he says to him don't make me angry you wouldn't like me when i'm angry and we all chuckle because we're in on the joke we know what happens when he becomes angry. But I never forgot that line because it's so true. Don't make me angry because you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. It's easy to see why. Because anger tends to not bring out the best in us. I had a very, very dear friend that was in small group with us, sweet sweet lady good christian and um we were having a uh, a study one time and we were talking and they were having some issues with um her her dad who doesn't know the lord and and uh some of his behavior toward them and and you know understandably she she was feeling unjust behavior from her own father and and i remember her saying Sometimes I want to get angry, but I'm a Christian and I'm not supposed to get angry. <clears throat> and I thought about that. And this was many years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I thought, well, that's, that's not what the Apostle Paul tells us, is it? Paul writes to the Ephesians, uh, to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 4, 26. He says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He doesn't say don't be angry. He never says that. He just cautions us about how we handle our anger. 
So do we give that anger to God and let him in his perfect righteousness handle the situation? Or do we decide to go it alone? I got this. Well, what does David do? As I said, these, these psalms we're discovering are great how-tos in many ways about the best way to handle things, like shame that we learned over the last couple of weeks and anger. So what does David say? Well, we can we pick it up in, in verse uh, 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. David wisely puts God in control. See, just as we were shown over the last two weeks, David doesn't hide from God in the bushes like Adam and Eve. He runs toward God. He's still angry. And he has a right to be angry, just as any of us have that right when we're victims of injustice. Nobody's saying you don't. But there's a right way to handle that anger. There is, believe it or not, a biblical form of anger management. So I have four steps for you for biblical anger management. Number one, and this is going to sound very familiar, confess your prideful anger to God and anyone hurt by your anger. Let me change that and say it this way. Confess our prideful anger, to include me here, to God, and anyone hurt by our anger. Proverbs 28.13 says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. See, when, when we don't turn anger over to God when we say we've got this, then we direct our anger out, whether it's to the person that we're actually angry at or sometimes more often than not to those closest to us. 
and there's casualty. So once we confess to God, I really goofed up here, and I was wrong to do that. Then it's time to go to the person that we wronged. It just occurred to me I need to f call a realtor uh, probably Monday. I think I stole the card. Um, but we need to do that for the same reason that Pastor Chris explained that we need to do when we're praying through shame because we need that cleansing. We need that redemption. First, we ask for forgiveness. The second thing for biblical anger management is look for God during your trials and recognize that God is sovereign over every circumstance. I hope it's not just me that struggles with this because sometimes it is really, really hard to see where God is. But he's there. And we know that. We know that God is sovereign, that God is in the middle of whatever it is we're facing, no matter how big, no matter how small. The Apostle James said in James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's that word again. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When I was uh, writing out this last part of Psalm 109, I underlined both of those lines that say, because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. And also, save me according to your steadfast love. That phraseology steadfast love it, it came up two weeks ago it came up last week we both commented on this i think i i prayed a couple weeks ago and and said something about steadfast love and it came up steadfast love and so believe me i went to the concordance i wanted to see what was going on there but really it, it is what it sounds like it is steadfast it is steady it is eternal it is never changing what a goal for us. Boy, I would love my love to be steadfast. Wouldn't that be amazing? James says, let steadfastness have its full effect. That also implies that we're going to have to be patient as we wait for what God's plan is and just recognize that God is sovereign, that he is in whatever is going on. It's going to require steadfastness. Hang in there. I don't think that there's a biblical translation that says hang in there, but maybe there should be. I don't know. Whether. But that's, that's it. Hang in there. Third point. Let God deal with it. Let God deal with it. Human beings, we're all, especially I think 21st century human beings, we're in control of so much. We, we spin so many plates at one time. We do so many different things. We have a hard time 
letting go of things, especially if you're a control freak, and I'm not pointing fingers or finding cause on anybody that is. I'm married to one. I love her dearly. And I am myself to a degree. I think we all are. And I think that's what makes this so difficult is because, God, you're sovereign, but I think I know a shortcut. I think I know a way to do this, and I can take care of this myself. And then we go back to that whole, I got this thing. And we know how bad that is. So let God deal with this. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God's justice is perfect. We wouldn't want it any other way. We may not always agree with it, but that's because we're not perfect. God's judgment is perfect. God's righteousness is perfect. So when we try to take over the judgment and the righteousness part, here's another uh, TV uh, <laughs> uh, reference for you. We become Barney Fife. We're the shaky deputy with the one bullet in our pocket, okay? No. No. God's justice and righteousness are perfect. God says, let me take care of this. And when God says, I've got this, it doesn't go off the rails. And finally this, and perhaps the toughest one. Repay evil for good. We change our feelings toward another by changing how we choose to act toward that person. Boy, that's tough. Because that requires a truckload of humility. But we change the way we feel about somebody when we change consciously the way we choose to act toward them. If we act angry toward somebody, we're just going to feel angry toward them. But if we show them love and compassion and forgiveness and all those things that we as Christians should do, then it makes us compassionate toward them. It makes us forgiving toward them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 through 44, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. There it is. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. When you're under persecution, pray. The next time that you're in a mood, pray. It'll do wonders. I speak as a recovering hothead. It does wonders. Pray and follow David's example. Put God in control. Pray for those who persecute you. Go back to that first definition that we had earlier. What is prayer? It's intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. It all lines up. It's God's control. 
God's purposes. And the, the more we pray, the more we make a habit out of that, the more we do that daily. And again, I, I, you know, I want to go back to just real quick about talking about making the prayer list. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticizing that. I do that too, and I think it's important, and God blesses that. But there is more to prayer than that. You know, I, I, I love, you know, some people like to use the word coincidence. I don't believe in coincidence. I truly don't. Today, in, in Sunday school, um, Bill was teaching on uh, when Paul and Silas were in prison um, in Philippi. And they were praying. And he made a point to say, you know, um, that the prayer was something more than what we normally associate with prayer right they're locked up their feet are in stocks they're in prison okay they've been beaten and they're praying and they're singing and i think that looks so different than anything that we are just sort of accustomed to because that's what we're accustomed to i think god finds value in all prayer i think god finds value in whether you're on your knees in a quiet corner somewhere in your home, whether you're behind the wheel of a car, whether you are at school, whether you are at work, no matter where you are, no matter what it looks like or sounds like, there is value to being close and intimate with God. And that's what it's about. And it's that practice. Pastor Chris said, pray more. Just imagine, as we grow more intimate and closer to God through that New Year's resolution, if you will, what that's going to do to this church culture, to our Western culture, to the culture of Oak Ridge, to the people we work with, the people we go to school with, the people we bump into at the grocery store. All of that is life-changing. Father, thank you so much for your willingness to be intimate with us. Father, for your desire for us to be with you. Lord, anger and injustice are so difficult. It is a raw and emotional thing. Thank you that your justice is perfect, that your righteousness is so good. Lord, we just ask you to stretch us and grow us and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.